awaken from this illusion. And you understand that black implies white. Self implies other. Life implies death. You can feel yourself, not as a stranger in the world, not as something here on probation, not as something that has arrived here by fluke, but you can begin to feel your own existence as absolutely fundamental. What you are basically, deep, deep down, far, far in, fabric and structure of existence itself. Welcome to the Parallel Mike Podcast. This is episode number five, and I'm your host, Mike. Thank you for tuning in. These episodes are flying by now. We had a fantastic episode last week with Rick Moon where we discussed end times. So I hope you enjoyed that one. This week, we've got another fantastic guest to share with you, and I've got plenty more lined up. But tonight, we are speaking to Mr. Chance Garten. Chance is the host of the Innerverse podcast. And the reason why I wanted to get Chance on the show is because he's also an expert in healing with sound. Now, this is something I first became interested in when I was doing my research for gold, the divine metal, because of course we know that gold represents the gods, it represents the divine, it represents Jesus. And I was looking into the other uses for gold, specifically in terms of worship, because whenever you go into these temples or cathedrals, what do you see? Well, you see gold leaf all around you. Now, I initially thought this was for decorative purposes and also again to represent the divine, but then I found out another use and that's the resonance of gold that it was actually used to elicit certain sounds within the temple and this got me thinking is there something that I'm missing here is there something related to sound and also healing or worship or transcendental states that I'm just not quite understanding so I started to do my research and sure enough the further I went into the rabbit hole the more I started to uncover and it soon became apparent to me that there is a whole area of study here related to healing with sounds that most people are simply not aware of and more than that the ancients particularly had a really in-depth knowledge of how to heal with sound and there's been plenty of studies done on this so if you go back to some of the oldest underground temples that we know of there's some in Ireland and there's also some in Malta well a professor from Cambridge University called Paul Devereux he's an archaeoacoustician so he actually tests the archaeology and the acoustics of ancient sites well he found these ancient burial mounds in Ireland and he went into these underground chambers that were underneath them and what he found was they all resonated at one particular frequency which was 111 hertz now what's really interesting is when he went to Malta and tested these other underground temples now remember these temples are around 5,000 to 7,000 years old but when he tested these other ones they had the exact same frequency of 111 hertz so clearly there was something going on here so he decided 
to test this frequency out on actual human beings to figure out what was going on. So they hooked some people up to MRI scanners, to brain scanners, and they played this frequency. And here's where it got extremely interesting because what they found was when people heard this frequency, or should I say when the brain heard this frequency, it actually switched off the prefrontal cortex and deactivated the language center. And the brain temporarily switched from left to right-sided dominance. And this is the side that's responsible for intuition, creativity, holistic processing, and of course, inducing a state of meditative trance. So clearly there was certainly a very in-depth understanding by the ancients of different frequencies and how to induce different states. And healing is a big part of that. So all of a sudden, this whole world of sound was opened up to me and I realized that there's something that's been hidden from us here. You know, we get this Rockefeller pharmaceutical model that's based on petrochemicals. And of course, that's all about profit. It's all about giving us side effects, making us lifelong customers. This is not about healing us and we all know it. Now, just to give you my own story as to how I came to natural health, when I was 15 years old, I actually had a problem on my face. It was a skin rash. And I went to the doctors and they prescribed me something and what they prescribed me gave me terrible side effects in fact it made the problem a damn sight worse and it took me many many years to figure out how to fix this problem and in the end what actually fixed it was a natural health product and that was what opened my eyes to the fact that we have been lied to when it comes to these pharmaceuticals and from that day on I vowed never to take another pharmaceutical and I never did so I've been using natural health products for well over 20 years but one thing that I never explored and I never even thought to explore was this idea of healing with sound. So this is something I'm really excited to be sharing with you. I think you're going to learn a lot. I certainly did. So I think you're going to find part one useful for hearing how Chance himself is using different frequencies to help people with healing. And he talks about how it's worked with some of his clients, what are some of the results that he's seen. He also talks about how you can actually use this technique online so you don't have to be in the same room as a person to experience the benefits of healing with sound. So that's really fascinating too. Now, as somebody that has worked in the healing professions myself, as a counselor and as a therapist and also working as a coach, I've worked with people with trauma pretty much my entire adult life. And of course, I've seen what works and what doesn't. So I was really excited to discuss this with Chance to see if he's worked with people who have had acute trauma and to kind of find out how healing with sounds works with stuff like this as well. Is it something that is just a complementary therapy or is it something that can actually be used as a standalone treatment? So we're going to discuss that in part one. Now, in part two, we shift gears a little bit because Chance also has a really good knowledge of things like astrotheology and hidden history. So we have a really good conversation about that. Chance gives us his take on the story of Christopher Columbus and how Christopher Columbus may not even have been a real person. And he talks about how much of that story is related to the astrological. Then we start to talk about ancient technologies that have been hidden from us and we discuss the technologies that the Nazis might have been developing over here in Poland because there was some giant bell-shaped devices that were found here that were filled with mercury. They had these rotating cylinders. So I get Chance's take on that. And then we talk a little bit about the Bible and the astrotheology of it and I get Chance's ideas on that and also what he believes when it comes to a creator. So part two, we go to many different places. It's a fantastic conversation and I think members are going to really enjoy that one. So I'm going to leave it there for the introduction. If you are a member, don't forget to log in over on the website to listen to the full episode. If you're just listening to the free part and you would like to listen to part two, 
then please check out the website where you can sign up for monthly or annual membership. But without further delay, this is my fantastic conversation with Chance Garten, host of the Innerverse podcast. Thank you all for listening. I will see you in the next one. Welcome to part one of the Parallel Mike podcast. I am here with Chance Garten and we're going to have a fantastic conversation today, Chance. You've come at just the right time in my life because I really wanted to speak to somebody about the healing properties of sound. It actually came up in a recent podcast that I did about gold, the divine metal, and I was talking about... Audio. Audio is gold and God in the word. Exactly. And I was speaking about that and I was like, I really need to get down to the uh the depth of this and i thought maybe you'd be able to help us with that but you've got so many other expertise that we can explore today like symbology and astrotheology but i thought maybe if we started with the healing sounds and then we can we can kind of take it from there yeah man you just ask uh, ask any questions you got about it and i'll introduce it or if you want i can just start to describe the method that i'm currently using and have kind of developed over some practice I'd love for that chance. If you just take it from what you're doing right now, and then we can just develop it from there. All right. So let's just hope that people have at least some, you know, background knowledge or at least aware that sound can be therapeutic, but to maybe introduce that as a concept without going too far into it. The idea is that coherent vibration has an effect on our cellular biology, has an effect on our mental state. And at the end of the day, there's actually quite a bit of research, even from materialist type science that demonstrates the efficacy of vibrational medicine or using light as medicine. And if you are a little familiar with what vibratory spectrums are, you know, then light and sound are, are actually all vibration. They're all the same thing. So sound is a form of light that's just beyond our range of visibility, but that we can hear or that we can feel so if anybody out there is really interested after we, you know, they hear us talk about this, I want them to check out a website called the Biofield Tuning Store. I think just biofieldtuningstore.com. And the greatest thing that they could do for themselves, in my opinion, would be to pick up a weighted tuning fork from there. I mean, you could get any weighted tuning fork, really, but I love the one from that store. It's called the Sonic Slider. And this fork allows you to directly apply sound to different parts of your body. So you hit it, it's not very audible, although if I hold it up to the mic, you can hear it. A little bit. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> could hear that. Yeah, so that's how I got into this. I heard Eileen Day McCusick, who is an innovator in this field, talking about it on a couple of podcasts, and I went and picked up her sonic slider, used it to really, really quickly heal a lingering shoulder injury that I'd had for many months. And so, yeah, um, I explored her method more from there. I picked up her book called Tuning the Human Biofield. You can also get at the website I just mentioned. If you really want to dig deep into this or maybe start learning uh, how to do it yourself. And then from there, I just recommend people experiment because you can't really do harm with, with coherent sound. And when I say coherent, I mean, you know, not the same, <laughs> something that has sort of a, a harmonic pattern to it that is consistent. That's what I mean by coherent. So uh, like not the same as the vibration coming off of your refrigerator or, you know, that's the sound electronics make that you just sort of filter out and tune out. It is about sounds that are basically balanced. And if you looked at it on like an audio waveform, the peak and the trough are consistent throughout the whole thing. And it's a 
yeah, that's the kind of vibration that is really helpful. And then from there, in terms of like people wondering about which frequencies are the best frequencies, again, I, I kind of recommend experimenting. I'm a big fan of the solfeggio frequencies, which I've talked about this a, a lot before. And, you know, if you want to take note of this, we could get into it, it as well. But I don't necessarily think that the, you know, YouTube video, 528 hertz, repair your DNA type uh, of marketing that people use to grow their uh, you know, 30 or three minutes of music looped for nine hours type channels. <laughs> I don't think those claims are really that accurate. Uh, but I do think that there's something to Solfeggio in terms of the, the magic of the numbers involved with Solfeggio. But anyway, I picked up her book, Tuning the Human Biofield. I read through it pretty quickly. I was really, really intrigued by it, all the like, case studies that she had in there, ways that it's been able to help people. So I started experimenting on it on some friends and some family members with it. And the method is in a nutshell, revolving around the idea of our energy field or our, what Eileen would call the biofield. And this is something that ancients and mystics have talked about forever. You would probably most know it as the aura, but it's a six foot bubble around, you know, on average, a six foot bubble that your body is enveloped within, or <laughs> I say enveloped within, because I kind of think that it's not the body producing the energy field. I think that the, the body is like the core of this energy field or emergent from it. In a way, I think it's like the blueprint for the physical body. And you could consider it to be, <clears throat> it's basically your mind. It's basically your spiritual essence or the energy of your soul, in my opinion, that contains all your memories, it contains all your beliefs, it contains everything uh, that is you, that makes you who you are and makes you unique. And in this six foot energy field or aura or biofield, there can occasionally, and I say occasionally, I should actually say very occasionally, <laughs> things can get uh, stuck in the energy field, uh, stagnant chi, prana that is not flowing. And when that happens, it's always a result of some kind of a, a traumatic experience that the person doesn't want to remember or feel, or, you know, there's actually a protective layer of our psyche that holds us back from remembering things or feeling things that would get in the way of our everyday needs of what it is we think we have to do to survive or get by. And then also beliefs about yourself that are in any way limiting or expectations about life that limit your experience of the full range of all that life would otherwise have to offer. These are the type of mental configurations that cause blockages in the energy field. And what's amazing is using tuning forks, you can actually detect where these blockages are at. So I would, in my method, have somebody on a table and then I would start to sweep, uh, I would hit the tuning fork and then start to sweep from about six feet away from their body towards their body. And then there's a very detectable edge when you're touching the, the outer boundary of their energy field. That's always something that in terms of practicing is a good place to start to try to find, you know, how the forks might speak to you or different practitioners might have different methods. I, I think the easiest or the most common one would be to just listen for a difference in the sound of the fork. And that might be like, uh, a bit of a dissonance or something of, of the overtones would shift or you might hear the fork in terms of when you hit stuck energy, you might hear the fork run out more quickly. I, I would refer to that as like that part of their biofield is thirsty for sound. 
And so when you find these stuck energy pockets, what you can do there is basically like click, <laughs> imagine like in a computer when you're clicking and dragging something over the trash, you can click and drag these blockages of energy to the person's body. And you drop them off right over their central column, their spine, their chakra system, and that restores the energy that was stuck there. But it's not necessarily always as simple as just sweeping in the energy. Sometimes these blockages are more significant and require that the individual you're working with be able to recognize where it came from, what caused it, what they believe about themselves or what they expect about life that is leaving the energy in that configuration. But the method has a really advantageous way of helping them identify that and deal with it, which is when the... Um, when you're coming from the outer edge of their energy field, <clears throat> the very outer edge represents stuff from right when they were born or maybe even in the womb. And then as you sweep in closer, the field is like the rings of a tree where the inner part of the field closest to the body is chronologically the closest to the present moment. And then so if you had, say, a 30-year-old and you found some stuck energy halfway through their field, you could guess that it has something to do with around when they were 15. So whenever you have that going on and you can tell about when it was, there's then the next part of the map, if you will, the roadmap of your biofield would be the chakra system. And depending on if you're talking the left or the right or which of the seven chakras or the knees or the ankles or the feet, uh, I consider them to be kind of like chakras. They're just as informational and uh, talkative <laughs> as the seven traditional chakras your legs are. Uh, so each of these regions of the biofield, the front, the back, the left, the right, and then up to down on all three of these axes have specific meanings like an anatomy. We actually call this the biofield anatomy. So it's a really remarkable method. So you might find, say, for example, I uh, found, you know, an example with a client would be at the level of the heart chakra um, on the back left side maybe finding some stuck energy from when they were uh, an infant or a baby. And this would clue me in that maybe something in the home environment that when they were born was negative or harsh, you know, bad vibes, if you will, because that's the part of the biofield that corresponds with absorbing negative energy from your environment or from the people around you. And there will also usually be, you know, you can kind of narrow it down even further if you find stuck energy at the same uh, age depth elsewhere. So for example, uh, maybe you find the same area of their biofield uh, stuck energy around the root chakra. And maybe it has to do with them not feeling safe or secure. Like you might then be able to infer that their mom and dad were having actual like fights, like maybe even some abuse patterns going on. And all this is very important because it, it, <laughs> you know, especially that early childhood stuff, it informs what they expect life to be like. So, and in this example, the person might have had a lot of experiences in their life where they constantly felt like they're being uh, attacked or they weren't safe and maybe even drawing those type of experiences to themselves or unconsciously walking into them because they deep down at a core level, they don't realize that they actually believe that that's normal and that's what life is supposed to be like. So, you know, you, you help them uh, see that, you tell them what's going on with that. There's also a very amazing phenomenon when you are the practitioner that sometimes, and actually pretty often, 
when you find the stuck energy, you might just get a flash of knowing like this is exactly what it is. Or you can incorporate other types of tools. I like to bring the tarot into the equation and like maybe ask the, uh, the cards, what were mom and dad like when this person was in the womb or when they were born? And that's the way <laughs> I'm pretty, I use the tarot a lot anyway, so maybe I just have a good relationship with it, but that has always been not just effective, but a hundred percent effective that whatever I, I pulled out of the cards and I'm asking about that individual, I will get an answer that resonates to them. I don't even tell them I'm using a tarot card to find that necessarily. And cause I think a lot of times the person, uh, clients that come for this type of work, a lot of them are, are at least a little bit wanting to have that sort of party trick of, I want you to tell me something about myself that I, you have no way of knowing, <laughs> you know, and I'm waving tuning forks around in my living room. They might be states or countries away. So it's pretty amazing. And the method works remotely and there's so much more we could discuss about this, but I think I'll kick it over to you and see, you know, what you would like to know next. That, cheers for that chance. That was a brilliant introduction that, that taught me a lot. You know, I've been a therapist all my life in different ways. I've used a lot of talking therapies and I've also undergone a lot, undergone a lot of therapies as an athlete when I had a, a, an injury that essentially stopped me from doing um, my career as, a, as an ultra runner. So I went through everything because I couldn't fix this injury. So I tried absolutely everything. I started off with the traditional stuff, which was uh, physiotherapy, sports massage, then I went to acupuncture. Then I went to all kinds of different uh, energetic healing because I couldn't fix it. And this was my uh, my career. But in my actual personal life outside of my running career, uh, I was a counselor and a therapist. So I, I've got to work with people too. And I'm really interested in this method because one of the things that um, we always struggled with, Chance, is when you're working with somebody in a therapeutic setting, if somebody's got a certain type of trauma or if you're working with a young person where you can't directly go out that trauma because it's still too raw for them. It's not always easy to actually engage with that specific thing. So you've got to work with them in a very creative way. And I'm wondering if you've used this therapy on people who have a very deep trauma, maybe post-traumatic stress disorder, maybe something that was uh, extremely um, traumatizing, maybe sexual abuse or something like this. And can this method work in a roundabout way? So it's targeting, it's healing, but it's not actually kind of forcing that person to talk through it or relive through that memory. Absolutely. 100%. Actually, before every session, I always speak to the, you know, I always set the intentions. I call upon the higher force. I request to become an instrument of my own higher self, the, the spiritual intelligence that animates all of the cosmos. And at the same time, I invoke the, the protective layer of their psyche that I just mentioned and I make sure that everybody present is aware that the trauma that we might uncover in this method does not necessarily need to be re-remembered or even felt in a, in a visceral way in order to be integrated and balanced. And so, you know, there are uh, pretty commonly clients will, whenever we, you know, tap into where they've got stuck emotional energy around sadness, they will feel maybe uh, the need to cry a little bit. That's not completely uncommon, but it's never like re reopening a wound that is then gushing blood. <laughs> no. <laughs> so that's a, a really astute question. And, and we don't, you know, I pretty much leave it up to them that they don't even necessarily need to tell me whether I'm right or not. Whenever I bring up something that I found like a certain type of trauma, it's up to them if they want to. There are some cases where the energy isn't going to move unless they say it out loud what it is, in which case I let them know. 
but either in, in those cases, they don't need to like go into all the gory details, <laughs> you know? Uh, so we, we've worked with, or actually we, biofield tuners like myself have worked with all different types of trauma. And what's really important to know about this isn't that they need to like re- recall or talk through it all, which is not a, it's not useless to do that. I mean, there's the reason those type of therapeutic modalities have been popular, but more that it just needs to be acknowledged and connected to the resulting consequences of that stuck energy or that trauma or that belief. So an example, you know, I hope that, I don't know if this person listens to my interviews or what, but uh, I've used this example a lot lately because a few weeks ago I had a client who had a, a lipoma on their lower back, which is like a fat deposit that's grown pretty large and is like a big lump, right? And this was a resultant expression of their body as it attempted to armor them against the experience of being stabbed in the back metaphorically. So they'd had a a bad betrayal where their ex-spouse and actually a lot of their friends all sort of collaborated on this betrayal. (laughs) And, you know, it's really harsh, really hard to deal with. I I definitely won't go into the details about it because it was gnarly, but that was what um, caused this lipoma. But then we were able to go back even further and find that uh, actually this was pretty, pretty quick in the session, putting a fork into the, uh, the person's field. I found, Oh, mom and dad in this scenario, whenever they were pregnant with this person, they were way too young and extremely reluctant to have a kid. So all of the energy of hesitancy and being an unwanted pregnancy was the core issue for this individual because in that sense it's a metaphorical betrayal by the people closest to you you know your parents in an ideal situation they want you they're welcoming you into the world they're supporting you in every way they possibly can but in you know a lot of people that's not the way life shaked out for them they got uh, mom and dad who were 18 or 19 or 17 or 15 you know and it's hard for anybody to be ready for a baby at that at those ages and so it's not really a, a method where we're trying to like point the finger and say they did it. It's their fault or blaming mom and dad. It actually something amazing about the method is that it heals the relationship with the mom and dad. It actually engenders compassion for them because uh, everybody involved is given the opportunity to take a little more responsibility for the situation. Like <laughs> several times, actually, I've had the experience where uh, like we work with somebody's trauma around one of their parents. And then, I mean, sometimes it actually happens during the session and then that parent will call them or text them and they haven't spoken for a long time or they don't usually text or, I mean, I think the record was like, I haven't talked to my mom in five years and she called me right after we tuned. <laughs> you know? Wow. That's that, crazy. So there's a, a downstream effect or upstream, depending on how you look at it, because we are actually an extension of the energy fields of all of our ancestors and not something that I get into that often with clients, but actually your biofield doesn't even truly end at the six foot mark where your personal bubble space is at. It extends further out. And I have heard of practitioners who do tunings for ancestral trauma and for helping people's ancestors who were really traumatized or had a hard time where they start tuning the person from like a hundred feet away. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they're like just working with the, the energies that far off of their, their core. So all that is very possible. And yeah, um, I think I answered the question. I'll, I'll leave it there for now. 
No, you did. And, you know, this gets back to, I guess, another topic, which is this idea that we can, that well, we live in this energetic universe. We all understand that because, you know, if you've, I've got hypersensitivity to EMF radiation. So if I've got uh, the laptop on now with Wi-Fi, my heart gets dead. I can feel the dysregulation in the heart. I'm very sensitive to it. So, you know, we're all, whether you look at it from a purely scientific point of view or you have this kind of more metaphysical point of view, we live in this energetic universe and our bodies are dictated by these frequencies and rhythms. But then there's also this synchronicity that we all seem to experience. And I get it all the time, Chance, where I'm thinking about family in back in Great Britain. I haven't spoken them, to them for a year. And if I'm thinking about them, I'll get a phone call from them and vice versa. Things like this happen. It happened just the other day. I was driving. It was my best friend's birthday, which I forget. I've never remembered his birthday. But for some reason that day, um, I was <laughs> I accidentally called him. I'm, I just went to his number by accident and called him by accident. It's never happened before. But it was almost like the synchronicity. And he was apparently thinking about me that day. And there, that, there you go. I called him. So this this kind of spiritual element of it, Chance, it feels like it, it's beyond just the actual uh, physical that we're talking about here, that there's actually something spiritual about this technique and this method, or um, how would you describe it, I guess is what I'm getting at. How would you incorporate that kind of part into it, that there is this kind of weird element to it where people can experience it from a much further distance? Absolutely, yeah. And can we put a pin in the topic of the EMF and being sensitive to that? Because sure, I'd like sure, to talk yeah. about that as well, but what you just described is absolutely astute that we, this is an energetic universe. This is a spiritual experience. In fact, I like to say that, well, one of the biggest cons that was ever pulled on humanity by uh, the priest class was that there was some kind of separation between a spirit world and a material world. We're a uh, uh, newsflash for everybody. You're in the spirit world right now. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, what they've told you about matter being like low and dirty and base and anti-spiritual is the opposite of the truth. It's a complete inversion. In my opinion, matter is spirit con condensed. And if it's condensed and dense enough to be matter, that means there's a lot of spirit there. It's not lack of spirit. It's a lot of spirit. <laughs> so, you know, your, your body is not something separate from your soul. I look at the body as being, you know, if the, the soul or or whatever you would call it is the seed of who you are. Well, where does the seed go when a tree grows? The seed becomes the tree. So in my opinion, your body is the manifestation of your soul. And in the time that you're using the body, it is your soul as far as I'm concerned. And it has the entire record of everything about who you are as a being and is 100% all knowing in my opinion as well that if you can learn to communicate with your body and speak a language that it can talk back to you through, you, there's a, you can know a lot of stuff. <laughs> and especially if you can at least talk to it in sort of a yes or no, which seems to be the best way that it is able to communicate. If you can come up with a method for that, then the sky's the limit. Then you've actually tapped into the source of what psychic abilities or intuition is really all about, in my opinion and from my experience. Maybe other people have a different experience and that's totally fine. But I consider the reason to be that you're able to do this type of method remotely. And to be completely honest with you, I could do the method with no tuning forks, with just my voice and my hands and still do it remotely, actually. But I do like the tuning forks because they have the added benefit of therapeutic, coherent sound. 
And for some people that are maybe a little more skeptical, it really helps to not have any sort of disbelief going into it. So, you know, they see the crystals and the candles I'm using and they see the forks I've got and they're ready to go. But what I think it allows this connection to operate even across vast distances, it, distance is completely irrelevant actually, is that <clears throat> this is a mental reality. <laughs> Everything, you know, is a form of divine imagination in a sense. The life force energy that animates your body and my body and everything all the matter of the cosmos is not separate so it's like one big coherent medium but it's not a medium in a physical sense it's like you know things can move at the speed of thought which is even faster than light so um how i comprehend this to operate is that our bodies are sort of like a vessel for this prana this life force and that life force is the eternal self-existing animating creative intelligent spirit of the cosmos and that inseparability of the medium of mind or spirit kind of the same thing in this description means that there's really no such thing as distance or separation apart from the mental concept of it <clears throat> and now I, I get that yeah there is distance in the form of like uh, it would take me a long time to walk and then swim and then walk some more to get to where you're at. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying that isn't true. Um, you know, there's like something my friend Topher says, frequency is location. So there's different frequencies that constitute different locations and you can't just necessarily change a frequency from one thing to another instantaneously, depending on, you know, how entrained that frequency is to where it's at. So there is like there are some physical rules to the world we're in, of course. So I'm not throwing all that out the window, but because the, you know, think about like water is the best example as a metaphor, but maybe even highly related to what I'm trying to describe that there's water in your cells of your body. There's water in the ground. There's water in the air. We're underwater right now. There's just different density levels of water everywhere. It's completely all pervasive. And I think, Really, we see the water in the glass as separate from the water in the air, as separate from the water in your cells. But in a way, it's one big interconnected pool, right? I think that prana or chi or life force is very much the same way, that there's really not any true division or separation within it. It can't be divided because it's, you know, if this universal mind or imagination of God is what everything's emergent out of, then there's no dividing it. You know, it's like you're trying to boil the universe down to like, what is the core essence of everything? And I think that's what it is. It's mine. So at that level of uh, reality or existence, no separation can exist because it's prior to any of those other concepts that give us dimensionality, you know, up, down, left, right, forward, back and such. So this chi or this prana, this life force animating your body and my body, it is pre-existent to even time and pre-existent to space or separation or distance. And so if you can communicate with that, you know, it's what people probably refer to as like the Akashic record and, and uh, things along those lines, you're able to tap into an all knowing aspect of your spirit or your divine spark. And through that, especially if you're, you know, I think it helps to have the, the proper intentions <laughs> for sure, setting your intentions really clearly, even asking for it to be the guide rather than you to use it. That's sort of how I operate. 
And in, in that you're able to very, very easily uh, achieve the result or the outcome that brings the most coherence and order to yourself and to the other. Because at the end of the day, this force, this life force is the ordering principle of the universe. It is what causes centropy in uh, what would otherwise potentially be an entropic reality where like, why do things self-organize? What is this principle in nature that brings about harmony and complexity and ecosystems and environments that are perfectly tuned to every member of the environment, every member of the ecosystem, there has to be some kind of ordering principle. And I think that's what spirit or life force is. And that's what we're tapping into. And so it's only natural that that aspect of self is able to bring order wherever you direct it, wherever this, your attention flows, energy goes, right? And that inevitably leads to an outcome where coherence is the result. Yeah, and it makes complete sense. And I think I think everyone's experienced this in their life. You know, if you walk down the wrong street late at night and you see different people, you feel the energy that's coming off different people. You don't need to interact with a person to feel what they're projecting, whether that's um, somebody who's just oblivious, they're in the world of their own, somebody that's aggressive, somebody that's got ill intent. Uh, and if you work in those fields where you actually meet people who do have Ill, Ill, Ill intent, I'm talking about, you know, if you're working with people who have harmed people, people who actually have a darkness around them, I always say you can definitely feel that energy before you even speak to a person. It oozes out of them. It comes out of them. Uh, and it's very palpable. The same, the energy of love. If you feel love with a person, you know, that person's energy it radiates that out towards you. They don't have to speak to you. It just comes out of them. So I totally understand that. But one thing I guess I'd like to ask you about, Chance, is what's the historical take on this? Because I know a lot of the uh, I know a lot of the ancient monolithic sites and temples have chambers that have different resonances, and there's been a lot of studies on this about burial chambers that had the I think there was the the ones in um, Ireland that were all around 111 hertz. There was some in Malta. I think there was a, a chamber in one of their underground temples. I think it's one of the only existing ones left. There's a chamber in there, and that's got the same hertz as the ones in Ireland. So there's definitely some lost knowledge there, or hidden knowledge even. What would you call it? Is it hidden knowledge? And uh, what what were the ancients doing with these sounds? That what, How far have you dug down into that one? You know, I can't answer that question in terms of what they're doing with sound, although when you look at this architecture – you can be quite sure that they knew something about something. <laughs> so I, I just assume that they probably had some practices involving sound and, you know, they even refer to the deity as the word, the logos, right? Actually, it's interesting. You mentioned Ireland and, and sites like Newgrange because in my research, the British Island was peopled by the Phoenicians and so was Malta. And actually, everywhere that you see these tumuli or burial towers, um, these sepulchral ruins and mounds seem to be derived from a similar uh, civilization or culture, at least linked, if not the same people. So I've been referring to them in the vein of my friend Dylan Sicosio's work as the referring to them as the holy sailors. And you see the evidence of their existence from the uh, Americas, Mexico, North and South America, British Islands, Asia, India, Egypt, 
you really turn over a rock and you see this civilization that we really don't have a proper name for other than possibly the Phoenicians or uh, the, I think that it's very likely the origin of them might be in Italy, potentially. So the Etruscan people who were there before the, the Latins who were uh, a colony of the Phoenicians, potentially, most likely. And so the Phoenicians as a, a name, I do actually like that because it, it in, invokes the idea of like phonetics and sound. So I can't fully in a, maybe an interesting way answer what the ancients were doing with sound. The best that we have are these things like physical artifacts and architecture, which has been called architectures have been called music frozen in stone. Right. So that the, the fact that you can detect acoustic patterns within these sites is very interesting and indicates a similarity of uh, knowledge between the builders or maybe the same builders. But beyond that, I don't know what their practices might have been. I think it's very interesting to hypothesize, and I'm sure there's actually a lot of work out there that I've yet to look into about this very thing, about using acoustics and resonances to potentially do stuff like liquefy stones and and create some of these large megalithic blocks but uh, very likely sound was involved with that some people are even out there saying that acoustics are used to levitate device or uh, objects and that's actually very possible i don't know so interesting thing to ponder something i'll delve into more in the future no doubt yeah it's a, it's definitely an interesting one because i guess we started talking about it from this kind of healing properties and then it brings in this extra element. It could have been for healing, but also we know that in a, even if you go into a church or a great cathedral and, you know, the acoustics in there, the unique, and also you've got uh, gold everywhere, which is something that I know from my own uh, study of gold, it's uh, properties in terms of its conductivity, but also its resonance as well. It's got a very a unique sound. It's a beautiful sound. It actually gives off this really beautiful ping. It's how you can test gold. You don't really need to do a lot. You can actually hear real gold. And I wondered if you've come across anything to do with the metals in relation to the healing or the spiritual properties uh, of sound. Another very astute question. Some people will actually question the efficacy of tuning forks based on the fact that a lot of them are made out of aluminum and people have very strong reasons to be suspicious of anything made out of aluminum, (laughs) which I don't, you know, I don't, I don't dispute that, but in my experience and a less expensive, mostly aluminum tuning fork will work just as well as a very expensive titanium one. So I don't, I don't advise people one way or the other apart from to tell them they don't need the most expensive tools to be effective with this work because it's really more about, your mind and your awareness that is doing the job more than the physical tool. And anyway, what you said about gold is very interesting. Uh, The one of the most incredible properties of gold is that will always be the same (laughs) for forever. You know, you lose some gold in the bottom of the ocean, you come back later and it will be exactly as it was 8,000 years ago. There's not a lot else in the realm that has that capacity of being sort of permanent and eternal like that. So I get it. And even the word audio is golden God, A-U, gold and D-O, God. So clearly that's uh, important and relevant. In terms of other things about the metals, 
Um, I don't know that I have anything to say about them in connection to healing arts or energy work like that, but the use of metals is a very strong thread to be able to pull on to tell where and what a culture was up to or what they you know were able to do mining is a big part of whatever the holy sailors i mentioned were up to you know they're setting up colonies in places they had the knowledge of metals they had the knowledge of smelting mining silver for example is not easy it's a very difficult process the dross that you have to refine to get silver is you know the silver is not very evident in it the way that you can see gold at the bottom of a river or you know shining at you through the dirt so when there are civilizations that are using metals it gives you a clue that there's <laughs> you know that this is an advanced culture or civilization in fact like when the spanish came to the americas they encountered people who had wooden tools and wooden weapons and, and stone tools and stone weapons and no no use of metals at all but they had these giant megalithic sites that they did not claim to have built that predecessors actually like in the case of the incas they were <laughs> said to have been built by uh, people who came from the sea on boats who were white men with beards so well you know take it or leave it but they also were reportedly using iron uh iron coins that were shaped like tortoise tortoise shells again very interesting because they did not have the knowledge of smelting or blacksmithing so these would have been really old uh coins that they're using as currency and that's another good thread to follow for people who want to investigate maybe the more accurate <laughs> what we can actually know about history as opposed to what the status quo mainstream mosaic history easily debunkable um narrative has been um you know okay, i guess there is something you could say about metals in terms of healing which would be in in mosaic history <laughs> the guy himself moses there's this story about him with the brazen serpent right so he lifts up you know, the the people of israel or are getting bit by fiery serpents according to the book of exodus and it's causing them to die while they're wandering through the desert and moses prays to god what do i do and jehovah tells him to raise up a brazen serpent on a standard so that is first of all an uh, an allegory for christ on a cross and in fact the hebrew word nakash has a uh, dual meaning bronze and serpent so when they're saying brazen they're talking about bronze and so this word for serpent and bronze go hand in hand and it's also referring to healing uh words that refer to healing like salvation uh <laughs> salvator sa things like that they are also linkable back to uh root words relating to serpents so that's an interesting one and in fact like i sometimes think whenever you hear the bronze age referred to <laughs> that you might as well be talking about the serpent age because the priest class that would have been excellent in those times in various parts of the world where they had the use of bronze was also you know they were the healers they were the, the miracle workers healers and such so the even bronze itself is an interesting thing for the ancients to have been using because it requires the smelting of copper with tin and the british isles actually were rich in tin and the 
Phoenicians who peopled those islands were mining the tin. So where they're getting the tin to make bronze in different parts of the world, like the, the ancestors of the Norse and in, in the Greek and, and Roman areas, like they would have been getting that from tin. So I think, you know, your, your homeland, Britain, is probably a place that was a, a highly guarded secret colony of whoever happened to be the most powerful empire at various different times of history because of that ability to get tin from there and how useful that would be. And also that it was sort of a, a breadbasket for uh, feeding other areas through this maritime commerce and trade that was going on in the ancient world. Yeah, it's just wild, isn't it? How much of this history has been scrubbed? Like you said, the ancients, wherever I've looked, when I look at the ancients, they had an extremely in-depth knowledge of the metals and the hierarchy of metals. And you can get back pretty far with ancient Babylon to about 2,500 years to the codes of Hammurabi, where it's actually laid out. But I took it back another 2,500 years. And if you look in the Bible, uh, I think in Isaiah it says, for brass I will bring gold, iron I will bring silver, for wood I will bring brass, and for stones iron. And they're talking about the hierarchy of metals. I will also make thy officers peace and thine extractors righteousness. And wherever I look in history, I'm, I can see that they understood the order of metals and how those metals were coming out of the ground. And it was very sophisticated. We think that we're at the peak of civilization right now, but they were doing this without our modern technological devices. They were actually doing it from what they were pulling out of the ground. And they understood the hierarchy very well. The ancients, whatever they had and however they were mining, it was clearly very sophisticated. And it wasn't this kind of impression that history has given us of these uh, primitive people uh, bashing around with sticks and rocks. I mean, like I said, I, I can get back about 5,000 BC and know that they were still using metals and that they had the same order that we've got today with gold as the pinnacle, silver as second. Uh, the only people that flipped that was there was the, in the Orient, they did actually have silver over gold. But as far as I can tell, that was actually organized by bankers and it would probably be the same banking elite we've got today. Their descendants back in Venice or going back to Babylon, they were actually playing gold in the West and silver in the East. That's what I could figure out. So it was more of a artificial hierarchy of metals that they had. Otherwise, it seems to have always been the one that we've got. Yeah, and that's an astute observation, you know, in terms of hierarchies of metals, silver and gold are both up there. I, I wouldn't say necessarily I put one above the other, other than the fact that gold has a, sort of this intarnishability thing going on. But silver is also more difficult to get at. So, you know, there's a reason to value it more highly in terms of a scarcity model. And yeah, I think it's interesting the uh, way that... <laughs> The, the this ancient doctrine of uh, basically associating everything in this big table of correspondences like every letter is also representative of a tree and a, and the zodiacal thing thing where each part of the year has a a deity and a metal and a tree and a color and all that and it's something that's actually again fingerprints of whatever this ancient holy sailor civilization universal religion was because you see that again all over the place you see this corresponding of all these different aspects to the zodiac and to you know that's in the americas it's in 
the East, it's in the West, it's everywhere. So I find that very interesting as well. It's definitely fingerprints of, of something that we can point to that is an, a, 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 an easy way to dispute <laughs> the mainstream historical narrative, 100%. Maybe we could change gears a little bit because it was fantastic talking about the healing properties. And I, I don't know if there's anything you wanted to add to that before we move on, but. Um, oh, yeah, I I'll do actually to want to add a little bit to that. Well, you brought up the sensitivity to EMF. Totally understandable. But what I want to leave people with is always an empowered perspective. And I'm not saying that you had like a victim posture about this or anything. It's absolutely. 100% biologically true that we're sensitive to dissonant vibrations like EMF and Wi-Fi and all that. But when we were talking about the biofield earlier, what I want people to consider about the biofield is that it is also your shield. It is your protection from dissonance. And because of this spiritual essence that is our prana, our life force that is circulating in our own personal bubble is also synonymous with awareness or consciousness or feeling. And this, like whenever there's stuck energy, it's actually repressed feeling. So in the same way, like if we have a very coherent aura without blockages that everything's in flow, everything's geometrically the way you you know, the best way possible optimized, then that constitutes a, a high level of resilience against dissonance, whether it's from psychic vampires and people with a bad vibe. And the fact that actually you will just kind of repel <laughs> those type of vibes and you, you won't be likely to encounter them. But also it is a, a form of protection against things like the soup of dissonant frequencies we find ourselves in in the modern age with the technologies we have so if you get yourself in a good level of you know if you find where you maybe had some hidden stuck life force that you didn't know you were missing and you work on especially i already mentioned that left shoulder left side of the heart chakra area where we get extra sensitive to bad vibes then these things like EMF sensitivity or even like food allergies or allergies to, to pollen and nature will, you'll find them being alleviated. So it's not to say you're like invincible and then you can just do dumb stuff or immerse yourself in, in, uh, in bad, bad fields, if you will. But that think about it this way. Like if you have a, I always use the refrigerator as the example, because refrigerators tend to be like tend to put off an annoying sound, but like if there's something in your environment, whether or not it's an audible sound that the, the frequency of it is causing you to need to filter it out. So like, you're just, <laughs> I can hear it right now, actually the, uh, the air conditioning and heater in this house, it whistles <laughs> like a tea kettle, <laughs> not like maybe as loud as a tea kettle, but it's very audible and noticeable. So I'm always kind of like filtering that out. And my wife actually, I think is more sensitive to it than me. But whenever you're doing that, you're, you're required to basically ignore some segment of your sensory input, right? So in that sense, however much of your awareness you're needing to filter out in order to disregard something dissonant or annoying in the environment, that's sort of like how much of your shield is being taken up by protecting you from that thing. So the more dissonant things, the more annoying sounds, the, the, the less coherent the environment, the more of your personal awareness, your life force energy is caught, tied up in sort of protecting you by 
filtering out whatever that is. So, you know, at the end of the day, the, the best option is to try to reduce the amount of dissonant things that you're enmeshed with, right? But also to know that we don't have to be, I'm not saying you are, but we don't have to be like scared of EMF or scared of Wi-Fi or things like that doing long-term damage to us if we have overall a high level of vitality, coherence, and health because you actually have a built-in shield against stuff like that. And it's just a matter of how much of your own personal energy you can put towards that type of uh, protection. And it's automatic. So, you know, this type of work with tuning, I found that I'm not sensitive to Wi-Fi like I used to be. I used to like, if I, I still unplug it at night, but used to be, if I didn't unplug it at night before I got into tuning, I could hear it in my ears. Like I could hear the bleep bloop, like a subtle, weird, annoying sound, electronic sound. And it would keep me up until I went and unplugged it. And I also used to have like significant allergies to dairy. And if I had any dairy, I would then be allergic to like pollen and to trees and cats and dogs and the whole nine. And all that stuff has gotten better and resolved since I've been working with sound. I couldn't tell you exactly what the magic trick was, but that I, that's my working hypothesis, as I just described, that your overall level of coherence is also your ability to shield yourself from things that would otherwise you know, throw a wrench in your flow. I think that's really interesting, Chance. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, I, I can say that throughout my life when I've been through different therapies for different things, uh, the one that really kind of jumped out at me was when I did acupuncture for the first time because it was not something that I ever thought would be the kind of thing I'd do. Uh, and when I tried it, it had an immediate kind of palpable effect. Like I'd, I'd go to those sessions, was relaxing, weird bit feeling, having those needles going in. But then afterwards, it would be like I'd just run two marathons. I'd just be absolutely wiped out for the entire day. I'd sleep really, really deep, restful sleep as soon as I got home. I, I couldn't train that day. I was an athlete at the time, but I had to just say, that day I'm doing acupuncture, there's no training. Uh, but I'd have these really deep sleeps, really nice dreams as well after it. And the way I got told it by somebody who was who I was working with was that we can you can hold uh, emotions in your fascia. Actually, the science used to say that your fascia was just useless. It was the stuff that held the, the muscles and the bones and everything together. And yet most of our body is made up of this fashion. And they said, well, well, it's useless. And whenever science says something is useless, it means they have no idea what it's for. You know, junk they say, DNA. Yeah, my <laughs> wife always says that, John. She always says to me, junk DNA, she laughs at it because, you know, what is junk DNA? There's no such thing, of course. And it's the same with fascia. It's got a purpose. They just don't understand it. Uh, and what they said to me was there's a lot of studies that we hold our emotions uh, traumatic memories, whatever it was. It could be when you was a child. You don't, you don't remember it, but your body remembers it. And if that's stored up, that can actually lead to a physical injury. So, for example, with me who had an injury that was chronic and I just couldn't get rid of it, they said, well, you, not get, you can't get rid of it because no, no amount of healing or therapy is going to do it until you actually get rid of the blockage, whatever that is. And if you are holding on to it, then that's going to keep the injury there. Absolutely. And acupuncture, although it's not something I've ever tried before, the way people talk about it and what I have learned about it, it, to me, it sounds like it's basically the same type of method as biofield tuning. Actually, I do know uh, someone uh, who does acupuncture with tuning forks instead of needles, but basically follows the same procedure. That would be Dr. Bear Lando of the Alpha Vedic AlphaCast. Great guy. 
very, very knowledgeable in, in all these alternative therapeutic energy medicines. So yeah, acupuncture is maybe a little more complicated than tuning and maybe good for things that tuning isn't as good for. But at the end of the day, I think what we're looking at here are languages that you can talk to the intelligence of the body through. So acupuncture has an anatomy, a map, where these points are, where you put the needles and they mean different things. Tuning is very similar to that, maybe just a bit simplified and maybe a little quicker to learn too, which I like, but it's the same type of idea. Absolutely. And, you know, there are types of injuries that are, that require an energetic healing to fully get past. Like another client I had recently, he had developed a goiter on his neck, like a big, big lump. It was like half of a, half a tennis ball, you know, and in the session we found various levels of roots of that even going all the way back to infancy but one of the uh one of the key things that we needed to discover about it was that he'd actually gotten hit by a car as a nine-year-old and broke some vertebrae in his neck and to me i was like oh well there you go (laughs) you know the neck hasn't energetically completely healed from that because it's never been addressed on that level what the body was going through on a feeling and emotion level that instigated the need for the external experience of getting hit by a car and breaking some vertebra in the neck. So that's what I want people to really take home from this conversation is that there are no diseases or injuries or illnesses or any form of symptoms or dissonance that the body does that are just accidental or just the body going haywire does not things do not work that way despite what we've been taught by the mainstream medical model that like you know your body's basically a car and you just take it into the shop to get some repairs after it gets enough miles on it (laughs) that's not how it works (laughs) nothing the body is an intelligent and regenerative system and nothing ever would go wrong with it you know left to its own devices but sometimes there's operator error (laughs) where we don't fully uh clear or acknowledge things that we feel or we take on limiting beliefs about ourselves or about life. That's the biggie. And then the body, because it is our greatest teacher and our greatest ally and the container of the divine intelligence of all creation or God, then, you know, the divine spark is animating that body. So your body is like literally your guardian angel and it is telling you at all times exactly where your bottlenecks are in terms of energy or spiritual development and the way that it communicates with you will be through dissonance or injury or pain. None of those things are actually innately bad or something wrong happening. They're a message. And if you can learn to speak the language that the body is talking to you through. So like if you just someone out there picked up the book, tuning the human biofield and internalized or maybe made their own chart of it, of the the biofield anatomy and what different parts of the body and the chakra system have to say about what the type of feelings are, stuck energies are, you will be able to get over injuries and not repeat them and maybe not even get them. Like I always think about what it would be like if you were a child raised with this knowledge of what the body was telling you. And so every time you got a boo-boo, you're like, okay, what am I feeling that associates with where that injury is? I don't even think you would get that many injuries. You could, who knows what kind of superhumans we might develop with that. So like, you know, just a quick example, maybe you have an injury on the back of your right ankle where like 
you're feeling a lot of soreness repetitively around like the Achilles tendon of your right foot, right ankle. Then you would, if you were aware of the biofield anatomy, you could ask yourself, where in my life am I indecisive or trying to have things both ways where I know I need to, I, I know I can only have one or the other and I know which one's right and best for me, but I'm trying to hang on to the other thing too. And you get clear on that and you'll like, I've literally had this happen before where I have something, you know, get hurt or go wrong. And I know what it associates with in the biofield anatomy and I reflect on it and I realize it or maybe talk about it with my wife and we, she helps me see what I'm not able to see. And then the, uh, the pain goes away and then the injury is better and it doesn't come back. Like that is actually how it works. And that's what healing is all about is self-awareness. So, you know, it's a very empowering thing to be able to speak the language the body is speaking to you through and it could totally change the game for a lot of people out there. And I hope they, hope they take this to heart and maybe do a little bit of learning about it. Yeah, I, I hope so too. It's for something I'm very interested in. And the more I've looked into um, ancient civilizations and looked into different metals and the way they've been used, it's very clear to me that there is a sound element and there always has been. Uh, but putting that together from our vantage point with so much uh, history that's hidden, maybe in the Vatican vaults down there somewhere, we don't know, but there is this hidden history. And Therefore, we're trying to piece it together. So I think speaking to people like you, Chance, who are actually experimenting with that stuff. Uh, I've certainly experimented with certain things in my own life, but I've never used a tuning fork. So thanks so much for your knowledge on that one. Now, I know from listening to some of your other podcasts uh, and interviews, Chance, that you've got an interest in astrotheology. So I'm wondering if in part two, Chance, we could maybe go take that thread a little bit and just uh, unpack some of your ideas on it. I can't wait. That is going to be a good time. Great awesome. teaser. Awesome, Chance. Well, I'm just going to take a quick two-minute break, Chance, if you want to get a drink or something, then we'll come back and we'll start part two and we'll have a look at astrotheology. We'll get your take on where we are, what we are doing here, and also I'd love to get the story of Christopher Columbus and this hidden history because I stumbled upon it in my own research of Venetian bankers. Uh, I don't know how you come across it, but I'd love to get your take on it because I heard you lay it out in another podcast and you put it better than anyone, so I'd love to talk to you about that. All right. Yeah. The, the Venetian Phoenicians. Let's get into it. All right. Sounds good. See you guys on the other side. Fabric and structure of existence itself. 